right, good morning, Rio. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith. I'm the education pastor here at Rio. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we just last night, this whole room was actually a banquet hall out in the, the south lot. There was axe throwing competitions and mechanical bulls and dunk tanks and all that kind of stuff for the school's annual fundraiser. And it was such a fun time and it was a great success. This has nothing to do with my sermon, but just an announcement of good news. They set a goal of 110000 which made me nervous because that's a ton of money. They destroyed that goal. And as of last count, the school, for all of their projects and fun things that they're doing at Bethany, raised $190,000 in a night. <clears throat> which I don't know how many people will believe me when I say this, but the thing that excites me more than the money is the fact that people love the school enough to give that generously. That says a lot about the teachers and the people who pour into that ministry and what they mean to this community. And so that's a reason to praise God. All right, so we are continuing our series. He gave us stories about the parables of Jesus. And this week's parable, which is the parable of the wedding feast, is a lot like last week's parable. It deals with the judgment and the judgment of God. Heaven, hell. Last week, Will preached a really, really brilliant sermon and he, this weekend, he's celebrating his 28th birthday, so make sure that you congratulate him and give him a hug. He loves that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but picking up on that, this parable is going to speak more. Jesus is going to talk to us about what it's going to look like on that day when we stand before him. And it's a beautiful parable. It is a challenging parable. And I want you to enter into the story because Jesus means for this parable. He wants us to enter into it and imagine ourselves in this parable. So this story that Jesus is going to be sharing, it's in Matthew chapter 22. The story that he's sharing is told on Monday after Palm Sunday. So Holy Week begins on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he's on a donkey and everyone's coming out to meet him and they're laying down palm branches and they're laying out his coats, welcoming him as the coming Messiah. They're celebrating him. All the children are yelling, Hosanna to the son of David. The poor are going out to him. The lame are going out to him. Tons of people that were considered the outcasts are rushing out to him to be healed and embraced. And meanwhile, all of the religious leaders are saying, tell your disciples to stop this. Who do you think you are? And they are coming to Jesus in this self-righteous, puffed up kind of a way saying, Tell these people ugh, to get away. Who do you think you are is kind of the tone of this. And so in Holy Week, Jesus is going to lay into these religious leaders. We envision Jesus and he is incredibly kind and incredibly gracious, unbelievably gentle to the lowly and the broken but whenever you see Jesus starting to get riled up and you're like, whoa, Jesus, who's he talking to? Almost always. In fact, maybe I could say always. Self-righteous religious people. Can you think of an exception to that? Temple courts, 
He looks at people that are walking around under the banner of his name, doing unbelievably wicked things, unbelievable things to puff themselves up and to bring the spotlight on themselves. And they're exploiting everybody else and they're abusing everybody else. And that is where you will see Jesus get real fired up. And he's fired up for today's parable. Just before we launch into this parable, he's looking at these very religious leaders, the chief priests, who hold themselves far above everyone else. And he says things like this to them. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors hated people, traitors. The tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And if you're in the crowd and you're looking at these, you're chief priests. And here comes this guy who's claiming to be the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world. And he says, prostitutes are going to get there before you will. Ooh. These guys were revered, but they looked at Jesus and they thought he was a joke. Why? Because Jesus welcomed the poor. And he welcomed the sick and the lame and the outcast and the prostitutes and the drunks and the addicts and the tax collectors and the Gentiles. And every one of those categories, the religious leaders of the time would have looked at and said, surely this is not a religious man. He's not even a prophet. Look who he hangs out with. And Jesus says, they're getting in before you will. Just a few verses later, he'll say this. I tell you. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Holy moly. (laughs) You imagine the reaction of the religious leaders? I mean, it tells us they they want to kill Jesus, but they can't because they don't want to start a riot. But they're like, ooh, how do we get this guy? What's their reaction? What's the reaction of the prostitutes who hear this? Who've lived their whole life thinking, I stand no shot. Those are the religious guys. And now Jesus says, no, no, no. They gotta, they're going to make it in before you. Me? You would come from me? Imagine what it would have been like to be one of the apostles. Jesus, settle down. Stop. We tend to clean these stories up, right? But I want you to imagine that the person that you brought here to church this morning stood up right now and said, Sam, you and Tom and Mason and Drew and Sandy and Will and Ryan, you're all going to hell. What would you do? You're going to want to sink under your seat, aren't you? Hopefully, <laughs> right? Hopefully you're not going, yeah, yeah uncomfortable. This is the context when Jesus says, let me tell you a story. As Jesus spoke, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables and he said, the kingdom of heaven, this is it guys, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And send his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Why is Jesus referring? He did this last week's passage. Why is Jesus referring to this day as a wedding feast? In our minds, like, 
What would be one of the most joyous celebrations that you can imagine? If you had to relate it to something, it's like, Jesus is like, we're going to go with a wedding. This is an incredibly joyous event. It's a celebration. It's a reunion when you get to see loved ones that you haven't seen in a long time. There's dancing. There's wine flowing. There's laughter. It's the beginning of a new life. A reminder of your own vows and the celebration of an intense love that is sealed with a covenant that says from here and forever, come hell or high water, I will never leave you, you're mine. And Jesus, this is the heartbeat of God from the beginning of creation. Do you get that? The purpose why he made the universe was to create a bride for the son that he loves. This is the reason God created the universe. He's seeking a bride for his son. This great celebration is his heartbeat. And who are the players in the story? The king, the father who throws the great feast for his son, Jesus, and he sends out servants. Who are they? They're prophets, they're evangelists, they're preachers. There are people who go out and say, you're coming, come, see the king, join this wedding feast, be a part of this forever. And then there's the invited guest. And I would say, like, if you were to think about some of the most stressful parts of wedding planning, the guest list is pretty high up there. Like I've actually counseled people who struggle with the guest list because this uncle and this uncle hate each other and they're going to be in the same room. And what if they fight for me at my wedding? I was bringing in all of my former life, all of the drunks and fighters and people like that, along with my new friends who weren't that. (laughs) And like, thankfully at my wedding, there was a big debate. Do we serve beer? We got married on St. Patty's day. So we had green beer. And all of my old friends, thankfully, they were all smokers. So they stayed outside and smoked and drank. And it was kind of like a segregated thing. But I'll tell you what, going into that, I was like, oh my gosh, I can picture all of my friends. And I had names going through my head of which one was going to be the drunkest and who was going to challenge someone to a fight. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And here the Lord has a wedding, a guest list, right? He's working with Israel. He's looking at his people that he's walked with for thousands of years before Jesus. 2,000 years ago, he called Abraham. He's worked with him through Moses and King David and the nations and through exile. And God's like, you're my people. Come to the wedding feast. But they would not come. And I want you to end this, like, because there's going to be some difficult things in this parable. But I want you to enter in, try to relate to God for a moment. He loves his guests more than you love any of your guests. And they will not come. He's throwing a party that is the most important thing for him. It's the reason why he created the entire world. And they won't come. How would you feel if you sent out all of your invitations, you worked it down, you figured out, okay, who made the list, who doesn't made the list, all the stress is over, kind of, and you get no RSVPs. It's how we treat God. And what's his reaction? Like, if a king says, come to the feast, and everyone says no, what, is, what, what should the king do? 
He doesn't say, I'm the king. He says, no, no, no. Like, I'm sending more to you. Again, he sent other servants telling them, saying, tell them that are invited. I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. And what Jesus is telling in this beautiful story is the entire history of Israel right here. They will not come. So he sends more prophets. He sends more people saying, come to me. Come to me. Do you know the kind of feast that I've prepared? All at my expense. You don't have to come with anything. I've got it all taken care of. I just want you to be there. Please come. And remember the parable of the prodigal son when the prodigal, who is the Pharisee in that story, says, you never slayed the fatted calf for me. You never threw a party for me. And here Jesus is like, I've given the, the, the fatted calf is slain. Like, what will it take? Come, I, the best is laid out for you. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm and another to his business. And this is convicting should be convicting because here you have God who's inviting them to come and celebrate the love of his son for a bride who, by the way, you're not just the guest. When the guests come together corporately, guess who we are? We're the bride. We are coming together and God is calling us celebrate my son, celebrate his love, celebrate the whole reason Why he came into this world. And what happens? All of his people have things that trump him. I got to go work on the farm. I got work that's more important. Money's more important. Business is more important. That's a big commitment asking me to come to a feast. Which, by the way, when we're told that he held a feast, the word in Greek is plural. Why? Because in the first century, when you threw a wedding feast, it wasn't a one night and done. It was something that you celebrated the first night and the second night. And it went on for a week. It was this massive party, tremendously joyous, big commitment of time. And people are like, eh. You know, I got got a farm to run. I got things that outrank you. And by the way, it's not saying don't take care of your farm. It's saying maybe the God of the universe who loves you so much that he would give his own life, maybe he should rank ahead of your business. If that keeps you from coming to the feast, this parable's for you. If your concerns over finance and the farm keep you from celebrating the feast, celebrating the feast. This parable's for you, it's for me. I don't think there's anybody in life that doesn't trip up into this season. Man, and so he just absolutely loves, and let's be honest, like, you only get excited about attending a wedding if you really love the people who are getting married, isn't that true? Let's be honest, you're allowed to be, right? Like if you get a wedding invitation and it's from your son or your brother, sister, your like best friends, you're like, I'm in, I'm going to that. That one's going to be fun. But if you get it from somebody that's like, you kind of get the sense that they're just fishing for a gift. You're like, 
And then you find out that it's on a Saturday. It's like, come on. Am I wrong? Am I the only one? I'm not the only one. You get excited to go to a wedding for somebody you love. Are you excited about this wedding feast? When something calls you into worship, say like Sunday morning worship, you get excited for the chance to show up and celebrate his love, or is it an annoyance? Do you want to go to the farm? Do you want to go to the business? And this is like, ah, I suppose I have to. This parable's for you. God's invitation to you should be a reason for excitement, not one of the invitations that you get and be like, really? Like in which camp does the king of the universe fall for you? Excitement? I got to go to that. And it says, while the rest, so these are guys that are like, "Eh, I'm not interested in that invitation. But the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. And you're going, Oh, come on, this is like clearly hyperbole. Who, who takes in people that are bringing you wedding invitations? Like, you must really hate a wedding if you're killing the people that bring you the invitation. And this is exactly the history of the people of God. You go back all the way in time. Let's go to the very first prophet that shows up who leads the people out of Egypt. Shows them, gives them the Torah, says, this is how you can draw near to the Lord. You look at Moses' prayer life and what does he pray quite often? Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. When the prophets show up, the nation of Israel wants to kill them. And it's pretty reliably consistent. You fast forward 500 years and you get to the prophet Elijah. And what had happened to all the prophets? The king and queen of Israel had gone around and slaughtered what Elijah thought to be all of the prophets. He's taken to Mount Sinai where he's just praying and having it out with God. And hear what he says. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. The ones who were inviting them to the wedding feast, they killed with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And you fast forward 400 years and Nehemiah writes, they were disobedient. The people of Israel were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their back and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They killed the servants. You fast forward from there 400 years. And God sends one of the mightiest prophets Israel had ever seen after 400 years of silence. And he's calling the nation to repent and to prepare because the kingdom of heaven, the great feast, is right on the verge. And his name is John the Baptist. And what does Israel do to him? They'll cut his head off. Now I want you for a moment, I want you to step into the shoes of God. Not only do they not come, but they hate your invitation so much they kill the people that bring word of it. What would that do to your heart? 
Man, he loves his people because he is relentless and he will just keep chasing and he will just keep coming. In the next chapter after this parable, Jesus is going to tell the religious leaders, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. They'll kill the apostles. They killed John the Baptist. They will kill Jesus before this week is out. But hear his heart in that same talk. As he's looking over the city of Jerusalem with all of its religiosity and all of the people who consider themselves so good that the idea that you need to tell me to turn away from my lifestyle so that I can become acceptable to God, like, I will kill any prophet who tells me that. Tell me I'm not good enough for God. I'll kill you, you traitor. I'm a priest. I'm religious. You can't call me to change. And Jesus will look over this city filled with this self-righteous, smug arrogance and say this, weeping. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. Do you know my love? Like the invitation is there. You won't come. When I send the servants, you just kill them. And the king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And you're going, whoa, hold on a minute. What does that mean? This audience would have understood exactly what it meant. It was one of the most traumatic events in all of Israel's history. In 586 BC, God sent a flurry of prophets. They had seen men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and these mighty prophets that came and said, turn, God has a wedding feast. He wants you to come, turn from your self-righteousness. Stop abusing the poor. Stop acting in ways that are disgusting while you're walking around under his name. He does not like that. And they get more wicked. And the king sacrifices his own son in the fires of pagan worship. And God says, I won't let you do this in my name. And he allows the Babylonians to come and destroy the temple and burn it with fire and murder lots of these people. They would have known that. And by the way, that will happen again in 70 AD, just 40 years after Jesus' ministry. The world will kill the apostles. Martyrs will pop up everywhere. The religious leaders will try to stamp out the gospel again and Jerusalem will be destroyed again in 70 AD and burned with fire. So when they're hearing this parable, they're thinking through, oh, I know that history. Man, Jesus is saying, do you see how you treat God? Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. I've already prepared it. Like I'm, this is the plan. I'm ready to go. Like I so want this to happen. But none of those who were invited were worthy, which the Pharisees and the self-righteous chief priests would have gone, if anybody's worthy, are you kidding? It's me. I'm the preacher. I'm the one who does all the religious stuff. I'm at the temple. I pray more than anyone. You see me? I did it in front of everyone. And Jesus is like, 
they're not worthy. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the main roads, which is literally meaning roads that go in and out of the gates where foreigners are coming in, where people of the city are going out, where you have the poor, the rich, everybody is on these main roads. And I want you to invite them to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both bad, what? both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And I'll tell you, that would have been a sight that the religious people would have had their skin crawling. You see, the gospel, Christianity, is the most inclusive faith you will find on planet Earth. It's exclusive in that you have to have Jesus to get in. But what else bars you? Gender, male or female, come on. Race, I don't care. Come on. Wealth, don't care if you're poor. Don't care if you're a billionaire. Even more moral status, you could be a prostitute. Come on. You could be the most broken person with the most shameful past. You could be walking around with skeletons in your closet. Doesn't keep you from coming. Good and bad. Come. Come. From the mouth of God himself, conservatives and liberals, clean and dirty, geniuses and dunces, what keeps you? It's not God barring you out. It's your pride. It's you saying, I don't need a savior. And that's exactly the line that the Pharisees say, do you know who I am? I don't need a savior. Everyone is offered an invitation from the king. Who do you suppose appreciated it most? The people you wouldn't think would be invited, right? The poor, the beggar, the dirty, the immoral. They get an invitation and what do they think? (gasps) The king? He wants me at his party? The rich, the moral, the put-together, the well-dressed, they get that and go, of course. Of course he wants me there. Which are you closer to? You see, when this parable plays out, Jesus is going to do something that's really surprising. When you read this at first glance and you don't think through it, you're like, what in the world is going on here? It goes on, listen. Says, but when the king came in, remember, it's filled with guests from all over, all types, all walks of life. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Because in the ancient world, when you came in, especially for for high-end weddings, you would be provided a garment at the door that you were required to change into. And so he goes out and he sees a man who has no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man is speechless. Why would you give you a wedding garment? It's pretty brilliant, actually. When you invite your wedding guests, some of them are really poor. They can't afford the nicest of clothes. They're coming. Back then, you didn't have a lot of clothing. And so some of your clothing stank. You're, you're unclean. You're all these things, right? When God gives everyone a garment at the door... What he's saying is, there will be nobody ashamed in my feast. Oh, and by the way, 
all of you who want to stand out, who need to be honored because you're better than everyone else and you bristle at the thought that you're going to have to wear the same clothes as that person, you better put on the garment. You're going to be clothed in the same garment as the nastiest, dirtiest, smelliest, immoral, poor person you can find. Are you good with that? Oh, and by the way, why else would you clothe everybody in the same garment that shows up to the wedding? We still do this today, by the way. Why do they do that? You know the answer. What pops? The bride. What God is saying is, I'm giving garments to all of you because it's not about you coming to be honored. This day is about the bride and her groom. I want all eyes, all glory, all exaltation going to them. And so come and put on your garment so that nobody but the bride and the groom is exalted. And here this guy shows up and he's like, not me. You don't understand I've got a really nice garment. I have lived and saved and I bought the dyes and I've got the metals and all the, the material. This is such a nice garment. Like I, I have to be noticed. I'm way better than them. Like I can't go in wearing the same thing as them. Ooh. He is better than all of them. And he's entitled to a little respect from the king. And notice when the king comes to him and says, friend, hear that, friend. How did you get in here without your wedding garment? It says he was speechless, which tells us a number of things. One, he has no excuse. It was given to him at the door. He doesn't say what garment. Oh, I didn't get one. He's without excuse. But beyond that, beyond being without excuse, he is standing there and he refused to say, I'm sorry. Can I go change? He just sits there and the word literally is muzzled. I refuse to even give you an answer. Do you know who I am? And as the Pharisees are hearing this parable, they're going to be very familiar with the language of the prophets that were sent. Inviting the people to come to the wedding. Because here's a little shock for you. When Isaiah looks at our garments, our spiritual covering, who we are in our own strength and by our own deeds, he says stuff like this. Ready? He's talking about you. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like what? A polluted garment. Please don't go before the Lord on that day saying, look at me. Isaiah's already diagnosed you. Your garment is unclean. Your moral record is not worthy to stand before the perfections of God. It's defiled. And that would be really bad news if Isaiah stopped there. But you know what Isaiah says talking about the great wedding of the second coming? He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord My soul shall exult in my God. Why? Oh, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of his righteousness. 
as a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest and with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with jewels. What are we clothed in? His salvation and his righteousness. Why? Because our garments are polluted. Get rid of them. Don't go before the Lord trying to prove yourself. Take the garment that's provided to you that allows you access into the wedding feast. This is huge. You know, at the beginning, God said, I want, let's make man in our own image. And what he was saying that is even from the beginning, man was to be set apart for God. We were to be in the special relationship with him, made to be like him, made to be part of this eternal wedding. And we fell. And what's the first thing that God does? He, he announces the consequence of the fall. But before he even allows us to leave the garden, what does he do? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins clothed for him. In other words, he says, no, 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 your fig leaves, they're not good enough. Something has to die for you to be covered. And then he sends them out of the garden. But the prophets and Jesus and the New Testament will tell you the garments of skin, the clothing you're wearing, it doesn't cover your spiritual shame. It doesn't cover all the ways that you have failed God, all the things that you're ashamed of, all the guilt that you carry that you can't fix. And so what does Jesus do? And when Jesus goes to the cross, there's this beautiful poetry that God is ordaining at this moment. When he goes to the cross, we're told that Roman soldiers take him and they're going to abuse him and they're going to whip him and they're going to crown him with thorns. And one of the things that they do, the gospels tell us, is they clothe him in a scarlet robe. What is that about? Scarlet is the color of sin, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be washed as white as snow. The scarlet letter, it's always the red light district, it's always associated with sin. And what do the Roman soldiers do when they strip Jesus naked and they throw a scarlet robe on him? What do they do? They take his, they're, they're in awe of this perfect, seamless garment and they cast lots to see who could get it because this thing would have been unbelievably precious and valuable in the ancient world. What's going on there? God's enemies are clothing him in scarlet as his enemies take his perfect garment away from him. Do you see the poetry there? God is being clothed in our sin. And the enemies who put God on a cross are being clothed in his perfections. This is the gospel exchange that happens on the cross. He looks at us and all of our failings and shortcomings and says, they're all mine. He goes to the cross, he pays for them. He extinguishes their power over your life. The judgment is gone, the condemnation is gone, but it's not just that. He takes his perfectly sinless life that he has lived, this perfect robe of righteousness, and he says, it's yours. These are the wedding garments for you. Put them on. And in case you think this is just a maybe, like listen to how emphatic the Apostle Paul, who writes after Jesus, 
He seems to think this is a pretty big deal. Ready? Romans 13, 14. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. 1 Corinthians, the next letter from Paul. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. 2 Corinthians, meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, Christ himself. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Galatians, all you who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Ephesians 4.24, put on, what's that? It's language of clothing. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator and Paul and Jesus are coming saying, do not come before the Lord on that day saying, look at me. I deserve to be here. Don't wear your own garments. They're polluted. God right now from the mouths of this man is saying, you're invited to the wedding feast. Are you coming? God is saying, I have robes of absolute perfect righteousness purchased for you with the life of my son. Will you put them on? Don't lean on yourself. Receive these gifts free and come. And meanwhile, back in our story, this is how the parable ends. It's how I have to end. The king said to his attendants, Bind that man who came in the wrong clothes and refuses to budge. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So this man who is speechless not only has no excuse, he doesn't apologize. He doesn't offer to go change. And in fact, he has to be bound, which means what? He doesn't go freely. He's insistent that he's entitled to be here. Do you know who I am? Do you know that I'm better than all of these other people? How dare you tell me that I have to be dressed in the same things as these? Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees and that's their deal. I'm better than all of them. I can't be trusted the same as them. They're prostitutes. Bind them hand and foot. They can't be here. You can't stay at the wedding feast if you're dressed in your own mess. You will steal from the bride. And God won't have that. You know what? I want you to imagine this guy who's going, I, de- I demand, I deserve to be here. Imagine the beggar who's sitting right next to him, who's wearing the garment. And he's like, are you kidding? Like, what's your deal? Like, this has all been paid for. It's all free. He's given it to me. These garments are better than your stuff anyway. Like, are you kidding me? Like, celebrate, enjoy. I can't believe I'm in the presence of the king. I can't believe he wants me. As a teacher, one of my very favorite places that I get to go and teach, I love teaching anywhere I get to talk about Jesus and the Bible, but my, one of my very favorite places to teach is a place called Calvary House that is filled with people that are going through addiction recovery. 
And they have wrecked their families and they've wrecked their lives and they have been through the ringer and made a mess of their lives and now they are trying to get well. And when you stand before people who realize that they are spiritual beggars and you tell them of the wild love of Jesus, they are right here. They can't believe it. It's precious. And they come with an attitude like, wait a minute. Me? Grace is amazing to a beggar. Is it amazing to you? Do you come and receive the invitation and go, Me? Me? He's giving me this clothing for free? Me? Are you more like the Pharisee who says, Of course. It's me. Or is grace still amazing? Well, you set aside all other plans. The farm, the business, for him? Oh, I get to go worship him? He wants me? That's the heart of people that Jesus will have in his kingdom. And if you find yourself, like as I'm preparing this message, I'm going through it and I'm going, oh man, there's a lot of me in this. This resonates. I feel a little convicted here. You know what Jesus wants you to do? Come to him and be like, man, I can't believe I come to you with a heart that's ungrateful. I come to you with a heart that shrugs at your gospel. I come to you with a mess and you still want me? Realize you're a beggar and you have a king that longs to gather you at his table. At his expense entirely. Amen. Father Lord I thank you so much for your goodness. Man. You just see how you're treated through history. And you still chase after your people. They kill the prophets. They kill the messengers. They ignore your invitation. We don't treasure your wedding as you do. But Father, Lord, I pray that right now this would be something that sits on us, that we would recognize what it is that we've been given and that we would be excited to receive this invitation, that we would marvel and be amazed by grace, that you would want someone like me and that I would show up and be absolutely liberated to be able to wear your garment and to stand before you not worrying about all of my past and my shortcomings and my failures because I am clothed in the perfect righteousness of your son. Lord, help me to be exhilarated by what it is that you've done for me and help me to then be excited to take that invitation and take it to the rest of the world, the good, the bad, the rich, the poor, all races and genders, Lord. Bring them to your table and let us feast. In Christ's name, amen.